Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Please turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Beautiful Sunday out there. Uh, I think that the fall weather's teasing us a little bit because it's bound to heat up and sizzle us again with some of the heat of summer. But it's such a joy for me to be here inside with you this morning. And uh, thank you for already, I've met several of you and you're welcome to me and my family has been gracious and warm and it truly is a joy to be here today. Before we jump in, I just want to say I had the privilege this week of meeting with Andrew and John over lunch and it was just such a joy to hear their hearts for this church and for the Lord and for you all. They genuinely love you and um, I was just super encouraged to see and hear from your elders just the shepherd's hearts and love that they have for the Lord and for this body of believers. And so you can be encouraged in that and I would deeply was as well as, there, as I met with them this week. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. There is honestly no greater joy I have in my life than to be able to open this book that the Lord has given us and to just simply tell and proclaim and declare of its life-transforming truths. And so this morning, that's all I simply am here to do. There's a story of a old school pastor that his people put engraved on his pulpit, and all it said was, show us Jesus. And friends, that's been my hope and prayer all week, that I would simply show you Jesus, that we would see him and behold him as a wonderful Savior, the great Savior that he is from our text this morning, which is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want us to just take a moment to pray together that the Lord would give us grace and I, to, for, to have eyes to see and hearts to receive and behold the beauty and glory of Christ as he's revealed in this passage this morning. Let's pray together before we dive in. Father, we come to you this morning as your people who are redeemed, who are saved, yet still hunger and thirst to know you deeper, to know you more, to know of the truth of the power of the gospel 
that has set us free from not only sin's penalty, but also sin's power. And one day we look forward to being fully freed from sin's presence in your presence for all eternity and glory. Father, may you just open our hearts and our eyes to be able to behold Jesus, that we would run from sin and run to him and behold him and dedicate our lives fully into your service for your honor and glory and our eternal joy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I do believe if you were to study human behavior, you will see that human beings are often in how they view certain activities or certain topics given to extremes as they approach them. Take, for example, your cup of coffee. I guarantee there are some of you in this room when you go to Starbucks or your favorite coffee shop, you simply order your coffee black, tar, nothing in it, strong and bitter. While some of you walk up to the barista with a long list of ingredients so you can concoct and craft the most delicious dessert that your mouth has ever tasted. Second, another extreme, an example is cars. Cars that we drive. Just yesterday on 121 I'm going and this car that looked like it could barely fit any person in it, this tiny flew past me. Some people like their cars tiny, yet then a big old monster truck flew right by me that could have just rolled right over that little smart car that was driving down 121. We're given to extremes. Think then about airplanes. Some people are absolutely terrified to get into a tin can traveling 500 miles an hour, 30,000 feet over, above the earth's surface. Yet there are some, I believe, crazy, not right people who will put on a bat-looking-like suit, jump off of a mountain, and that suit catches air as they fly through the mountains. I think that is insane, but people want to fly like birds in the sky. There are also extremes in the church, aren't there, especially as it relates to our worship music. Some still get their jam on to the good old pipe organ or a cappella tunes, while some don't think their worship is complete until you have a skinny jeans festival with concert lights and smoke machines, right? These are all just kind of funny and simple examples about how we indeed are given to extremes as God's people. But there is also an extreme amongst God's people in his church that is a little bit more serious in fact, it's a very serious extreme that if we truly had our lens focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would do well to avoid. And I believe these extremes as it relates to our sin and how we respond to our sin as blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ can be categorized in two ways, two extremes that we should avoid. And the first one is what I would call this morning a sin compromiser. The other one, a self condemner. Let me introduce you briefly to both of them this morning. First, let's start with the sin compromiser. The sin compromiser is someone who looks at sin and minimizes sin. They have this view that they abuse the grace of God because they see the grace of God in some twisted way as a license to sin. See, the sin compromiser knows of their Savior's love for them and the depths of his grace and his mercy, and that he will indeed freely forgive them when they confess their sin. But they take sin too lightly. And their motto is that, hey, I know Jesus died for my sin, 
And therefore, since I'm forgiven of my sin, I can go out and sin up all the more. And friends, if they had a song, it would possibly be, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, but I've been forgiven of my sin, so off to sin I go. Friend, if you find yourself in the sin compromiser extreme today, then this passage is going to confront that mindset with one simple command. Sin compromisers should run from sin. But let's now be introduced to the self-condemner briefly. The self-condemner, believe it or not, is someone who maximizes sin in their life and absolutely forgets about the grace of God. And because of that, they live under a cloud of constant condemnation and guilt and shame because of their sin. This person maximizes their sin. And though they're freely forgiven and have come to the Lord in repentance and confession for the same sin over and over again, they still live under a cloud of constant guilt and condemnation. The self-condemner has the motto that Jesus died for me, but I still sin. I'm wretched. I'm filthy. God could never love me. God could never care for me. I've blown it way too much. He could never forgive me. And if they had a song, it would unfortunately be that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I've sinned way too much, so off to hell I go. Friend, if you find yourself in the self-condemner camp this morning, then this passage too, as we center our eyes on Jesus and the truth of the gospel, will set you free from that self-condemner mindset as you simply remember Jesus when you sin. And friends, this morning, I want us to understand clearly that both of these extremes, both of them are equally unbiblical and unhealthy. They both push against the gospel. They both push against the grace of God in that the sin compromiser forgets of a call to holiness and the gospel's transforming power in their lives, while the self-condemner forgets about the gospel's grace and its forgiving power. And this passage is packed with truth through the truth of the gospel that the sin compromiser and self-condemner through a biblical and Christ-centered gospel lens can finally be free from sin's power, know that they are free from sin's penalty, setting them on a path to live lives that magnify the glory of Christ for the glory of God. So let's dive in first to what John has to say this morning to the sin compromiser. And again, the command is simple. The sin compromiser must simply repent and run from sin. 1 John 2, 1 tells us clearly that all of God's children are not to play around with sin and should run from it. Notice he says, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. This command to not sin is not a harsh command coming from John. Instead, it's one coming out of love. Notice how he addresses them. He says, my little children. He's addressing them tenderly, caringly, compassionately as their spiritual father. He's not domineering. He's not harsh. He's not pointing their, his finger at them saying, how could you sin, you wretched sinners? No, he's coming to them as a loving pastoral shepherd who's caring for their souls. He loves them deeply. 
And he's calling them to this obedience because he knows that sin, first and foremost, does not provide the joy and the pleasure and that it promises to deliver. Sin is empty, and he is pleading with them out of love for them to avoid such disappointment and destruction that sin brings. In his thesis statement back in chapter 1, verse 4, he says he writes these things about Jesus that he saw, that he heard, that he beheld in the flesh. He writes these things, and he writes this book so that their joy may be made complete. And here, continuing with that, he's continuing that theme that believers, this command to sin and not take sin too lightly is there so we do not forfeit the joy that comes with a deep, abiding intimacy and fellowship with Christ and with one another. Sin only robs us of that, so we should run from sin. Friends, sin always provides some level of joy, right? Our, sin, our, our flesh enjoys sin at some level, but it never provides the joy that Jesus gives and the joy that we can find in him. It's a far lesser joy. So we run from sin and feast our eyes on our Savior. Friends, you've experienced that. You've experienced the truth that when the enemy and our own simple flesh says, hey, there's this sin to behold and we pursue it and we take that bait and fall into it. What was once promising pure joy and satisfaction and pleasure instantly, the moment afterwards, fails to do what it promises to deliver. It's only by running to Jesus, running from sin, running to him, running to our Savior, will we find the true source of true eternal soul-satisfying joy. Friends, Jesus is better than any sin we could ever indulge in. And John writes to us this morning that our joy may be made complete. I believe John's also motivated, and you see Scripture is motivated, to write about sin to the church because when believers sin, we essentially do trample the glory of Christ. As, as believers, we are to put on new lives, righteous lives, so to, to live before one another but also before the world. The gospel transforms us into new creations and gives us freedom from sin to show the life-transforming power of the gospel. Jesus said it himself that as his follower, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's not freedom as some take it to just go and do and live however you want. It's freedom from sin. And not only its penalty, not only the crippling demands of the law, but also free from sin's power in our lives. Yet the sin compromiser sees this freedom and the grace of God as a license to sin, and they minimize the power of the gospel to transform them and give them freedom over sin's power, and they abuse the grace of God. Now, why would John feel so compelled to write about this at this point in his letter to them? Well, if you look just above at the end of chapter 1, he has just espoused on the fact that we indeed truly are sinners, that even as believers, we are still sinners. We still have indwelling sin. And he writes this beautiful truth in 1 John 1, 9. He says that when we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sin compromiser perhaps looks at this verse and takes it to heart and understands that, hey, the beauty of the gospel is such that I confess my sin and God forgives me. But instead of leading them to repentance and to a life of holiness, they use it as a free pass to sin and thus abuse the grace of God. I just hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul as well in Romans 6, that after laying out a beautiful presentation of the gospel and the grace of God and how Christ and the gospel is superior to the obedience demanded in the law, as he puts gospel grace out as something that is unfathomable and unbelievable, he's perhaps concerned that some will say, should we go on sinning so grace may abound? And his answer is, in the most absolute, clearest sense, may it never be. Why? Because he goes on to say, don't you know that you've been freed from sin? You're no longer slaves to sin. You are no longer to present your bodies as vessels of unrighteousness, but of righteousness and holiness. Friend, if you're a sin compromiser this morning, just know that our salvation, the grace of God, does not grant us a free pass to sin. And in fact, I think the matter is much more serious than what I have said so far. If this is your mindset with sin, if your lifestyle has the overall pattern of a lifestyle of sin and compromising it and taking it too lightly, you might want to check your conversion. John goes on to espouse these truths that there's a dire warning for those who have never demonstrated the life-transforming power of the gospel in their lives that they may need to check to see if they are truly in the faith. We see this throughout Scripture. So friend, this morning, if when you sin, even though you come to church, even though you may read your Bible, even though you're involved in fellowship, if when you sin, the pattern of your life is there's no conviction, there's no remorse, there's no shame, there's no evidence of a desire to obey God, no repentance, then you need to perhaps check and see if you have truly experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. Because a true believer, while we still do sin, the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and leads to repentance from sin. And friends, I just want to say this morning that we have an enemy. And one of his biggest goals, Satan's goals, is to try to get people to believe that they are saved when perhaps they are not and maybe today is the day for some of you, that today is the day that God is putting that conviction in your heart to draw you to his son as your savior for the very first time through repentance and faith in him. But with that even said, we must remember that John is writing this to believers. The command to not sin, the, the fear that believers may abuse the grace of God is written to believers, and he calls us to run from sin. But how do we do this? Because we know sin is still active in us. We know the treasures and pleasures of sin at times are still so appealing to us. So how do we run from sin? We don't do it in our own strength, brothers and sisters. We do so by, by, by relying on Christ, pressing in to Christ and realizing that in Christ alone, not in our own strength, we have power over sin. 
Sin was once and no longer is the dominating force in your life. Sin used to say jump and we would say how high. Sin would say run and we'd say how far. Sin would say bow and we would say how low. But as believers, we can tell sin no because it no longer rules over us. Jesus does. And we must remember that. And we must rely on him. The good news is that God has given us perhaps two sources of power against sin in our lives, his word and his spirit that indwells us. The word of God and spirit of God together powerfully applies God's word to our hearts to give us the supernatural ability to obey what God has revealed in his word. So we soak up God's word. We trust in the power of the Spirit that indwells within us to push us to run from sin. But also as we soak up God's Word, the Holy Spirit is pointing us to this Savior, to Jesus that John speaks of in chapter 1. As we read the pages of Scripture that have all of their sum in Christ that John saw and heard and touched and beheld, we too see His glory revealed before us. So we come to God's Word ready to soak it in, asking God to give us eyes to see and behold the beauty of Christ and hearts that love and adore the beauty of Christ. When we treasure him, we won't treasure the pleasure of sin. When we worship him, we will run from the fleeting lesser joys that sin promises. And when we behold Jesus as our soul-satisfying treasure, we have the greatest sin-killing weapon we could ever have as we behold him in our lives. And like the psalmist, we declare, I've soared up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Sin compromiser, the application is clear. The gospel has called you to a life of holiness and by God's grace and his power that he's given to everyone freely who believes in him is to repent and run from sin. But second, John turns now to the sin, the, to, not to the sin compromiser, but to the self-condemner. The self-condemner has the simple command to remember Jesus. So often when we sin as believers, and here's a newsflash for us all, that I actually have to be reminded of myself. As a believer, I still have a sin monster living within me, and I still have a tempter in the world that wants to appeal to my fleshly and sinful desires to lure me into sin. And I'll just confess to you all this morning, I take the bait sometimes. But see, here's the thing the self-condemner does when they fall into sin. They allow them falling into sin to instantly cast a cloud of condemnation over them. And they live under a cloud of condemnation that Jesus died to free them from. They live discouraged. They live depressed. They live in constant shame over their sin when Jesus has set them free from that. Notice what John writes here in verse, in, in verse 2. He says, but if anyone does sin. He's already said, run from sin, believer, my little children. But if anyone does sin, and the way this is constructed, it's a conditional statement in the Greek. And it's basically saying, it's not if you will sin. It's essentially saying, hey, believers, when you sin, 
Remember Jesus. Sin need not destroy you when you sin. Sin not need to allow the devil an opportunity to wave a constant flag of condemnation over you, believer. Because John's already made it clear that in verse 10, that genuine believers have sinned in the past. And in verse 8, that genuine believers still sin in the present. And here in verse 2-1, that believers will still sin in the future. And self-condemner, we must avoid the extreme of self-condemnation. Because a self-condemner comes to God and confesses their sin genuinely, repentantly, turns from it, and is granted forgiveness from God, but still they heap coals of condemnation upon themselves. See, the struggle of the self-condemner is not that they take sin too lightly, but they maximize it. And they maximize it to the point where they believe that their sin is not even reachable by the grace of God. And they despair over it and thus live a life enslaved to sin's guilt, thinking that they are still punishable by sin's penalty that Christ paid to set them free from. Now, friends, some people might say, well, you know what? If I had to choose the two extremes, I'd rather choose the self-condemner because as a self-condemner, I'd rather live under despair and condemnation than to compromise with sin, right? But friend, that mindset flies in the face of the gospel. That mindset, too, of the self-condemner, it basically goes against the wind of the grace of God that we received, and it minimizes the cross in which Christ died. The self-condemner mindset is no less more pious or holy or spiritual than the sin compromiser because it minimizes the blood of Christ that provides free, full, final, and forever forgiveness of sin. The self-condemner is no better. So instead, self-condemner, if that is you this morning, and believe me, I have been in both of these camps at different times, and both of them are miserable to be in. But if you are a self-condemner, it's not time to no longer live in condemnation. It's no longer time to live under the doubt of your salvation that Christ so freely gives and live life discouraged and despairing over your sin. Don't rehearse the condemnation that the enemy pours upon us, but remember Christ. Remember Christ. And John tells us two glorious truths about Jesus that we would, be do, that we would do well to remember when we do sin. And the first one is that Jesus is your advocate. Notice what John says again. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We remember that Jesus is our advocate. We have an advocate in Jesus, and that is such good news for believers. This word advocate is taken from the word paraclete, which simply means to come alongside of someone to help them. And in the first century, this word would have instantly brought up a picture of a defense attorney in a court of law. We know what defense attorneys do. They come alongside of those who have been uh, accused of a crime and are on their way perhaps to a conviction for a sentence for the crimes that they committed. And a defense attorney comes alongside to either get them set free from that conviction and, and get them free or a reduced sentence. That's what an advocate is. It's like a defense attorney. 
And friends, we have seen all throughout history some powerful defense attorneys who have taken even the most guilty criminal that everybody is saying all the evidence points to that criminal being guilty and somehow this defense attorney pulls a rabbit out of their hats and gets them set free as if they're not guilty. Friends, we have a much better defense attorney than any defense attorney ever to live on this earth. His name is Jesus. And we do stand before the Father totally guilty. We are guilty sinners charged with treason and rebellion against the creator of the universe. All evidence points to us deserving just condemnation for our sin. But Jesus, our advocate, steps in. He steps in and pleads our case before the Father and says, Father, yes, Brian is guilty of all kinds of sin, but he is mine. He's covered by my blood. If you're in Christ today, he pleads that case on your behalf before the Father's throne today, and he clothes us in his perfect righteousness. But the devil doesn't let us off the hook that easy, does he? While the Father freely forgives those who are in Christ, the devil still likes to rush in at those times when we sin and heap that condemnation upon us. Because like I said earlier, the devil's biggest trick for those who think they are saved, but they are not, is try to convince them that they are. But the devil has a field day with us sometimes as believers who are genuinely saved to try to cripple them by thinking that they are not immobilizing us for the mission, minimizing the cross in our lives, taking our eyes off of our Savior and just constantly dwelling on our sin. Satan would love for us to forget the promises of the gospel, and he warms his hands upon the coals of condemnation when we believe the lies of the one who hates us instead of the truths of the one who loves us. And he wins when we do so. So when you sin, believer, instead of saying, God could never love me, God could never forgive me, I've blown it way too much, I struggle with this sin, if people only knew, if, if God only knew, which he does know everything about you, and you say he can't forgive me, you'd be good to return and remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Always run to Jesus when you sin. In a dream, Martin Luther found himself being attacked by Satan in this way, and the devil continually unrolled a scroll, a long scroll, listing all of Luther's sins. And at the end of it, Martin Luther looked at him and said, is that it? Is that all you have? To which the enemy said no. And he rolled out a second scroll with all of Luther's sins, and a third, and a fourth. And then finally, the enemies rolling out of all of Luther's sins were done. And Luther looked at him and said, well, you must be finished now, but you have forgotten one thing. This is all covered by the blood of Jesus. So friends, when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this simply, Yes, I deserve death and hell for my sin. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, I shall also be. 
We wave the flag of Romans 8, 1 that says, there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And oh, what joy and oh, what freedom we forfeit when we believe the lies again of the one who hates us instead of the truth of the one who loves us. We remember Jesus as our advocate. And second, we remember Jesus as our propitiation. He says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our propitiation. That word's a complicated word. It's a big word, hard to say sometimes, but it is a beautiful word because in this context, what is referring to that those who are in Christ are no longer under God's wrath because Jesus, our propitiation, has fully satisfied the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. He's removed the wrath. Jesus at the cross proves to be a glorious, sufficient Savior for all of your sins. No matter how little you think your sins are or how terrible you think your sins are, Jesus is your propitiation and fully satisfied. Not somewhat, not just a little, fully satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf, believer. So you will never experience one little drop of God's wrath. Go with me here for a second, and I'll just put a disclaimer here. This is not theologically accurate. This does not really happen, but just for the sake of a little word picture, go with me here this morning. Imagine the time you were born. There was a bucket in heaven created for you with your name on it, simply because you were born into this world as a sinner with a sin nature. And there's this bucket, and it has your name, and it says God's wrath underneath it. And every time you sinned, in whatever way you sin, whether it be in thought, word, or deed, God stores up his wrath. He pours his wrath into this bucket. And all of your life, you're storing that up for one day where he's going to pour that wrath completely upon you. But instead of pouring that bucket on you, he picks it up, looks at his son on a cross, and fully empties that wrath upon his son not a drop left. Friends, it's what Jesus has done for you. Believer, not an ounce, not a drop of wrath is still stored up for you for your sin. Conviction, yes. Consequences, yes. Discipline from a loving heavenly father for our sin, yes. Wrath, no. Condemnation, never. Because at the cross, as we sang earlier, Jesus said, it is finished. So believer, when you fall into sin, don't wave the flag of condemnation over yourself. Don't give room for the enemy who is the accuser of the brethren to just convince you that you are unworthy of God's love, undeserving of his grace, undeserving of his mercy that you deserve hell for your sin. Friends, we can look at him and say he is absolutely right in those things. But what he forgets to sing as part of that song over us is that Jesus saves. That's what we remember. When we sin, we remember Jesus. Perhaps the words for, from Pastor Steve Lawson will be helpful for you. 
He says the glorious news of the gospel reminds us that an unbeliever, any unbeliever, may become a believer. That's good news. But also, no believer will ever become an unbeliever. That's the truth of the gospel. Our salvation was thought up and preordained by God in eternity past. We are saved by a sovereign God, and we are kept by a sovereign God. The song, He Will Hold Me Fast, basically preached that whole part of this sermon. And sometimes I think we feel like little children walking with God, trying to reach up and hold His hand as tight as we can. We come to Him by faith, but we think that we somehow have to tighten our grip and hold on to Him as tight as we can. When really the picture is, we could never do that. It's God reaching his hand down and holding us. And friends, he never lets go. John 6, 39 reminds us that Jesus will never lose a single one that the Father has given him. So again, your sovereign God has saved you. Your sovereign God keeps you. And the sovereign Holy Spirit seals you for heaven. So self-condemner, when you sin, remember Jesus who is a great advocate and our propitiation, a sufficient savior for sinners like you and like me. But John goes on to say one last thing that I want to address here. He says, not only is he the propitiation for our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does John mean here by saying he's also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? I'll tell you this morning, it does not mean some universalism that all people are saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. That perhaps one day everyone will bow their knee before Jesus and be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. That everyone will be saved. That is not what this is saying here. Scripture makes it clear that anyone who doesn't trust in Christ deserves everlasting punishment. So when it says Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world, it means this, that his sacrifice is sufficient to save anyone who would believe in him. He is the propitiation for all who currently believe in him, and he is that promised propitiation for all who are yet to come and believe in him. Anyone, the gospel says, who comes to Christ will be saved from God's wrath. That's good news for all of us in this room, but it's also good news if you this morning have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior. Let me first share a warning with you that comes with this good news. The truth is that if you've not trusted Christ, the wrath of God is still upon you, friend. It's still headed your way for all eternity. If you leave this world with your last breath apart from Christ, then God's wrath for your sin will be part upon you for all eternity. You will stand before him and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You are still condemned before a pure and holy God. But there's good news. There's hope for all people who will come to him because the grace and forgiveness for sin comes to all who trust in him. Christ's death is sufficient for anyone who will believe, and it is effective for all who believe in him. Jesus is a great sinner. 
He died for sinners like you and like me and anyone who believes in him, no matter how bad their sins may be, will have eternal life with him in heaven. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. That's eternity in heaven with the Father. So if you're still condemned, friend, as long as you still have breath in your lungs, it's never to trust, too late to trust in Christ for your forgiveness and receiving the gift of eternal life. Run to Jesus for your salvation for the very first time. The great hero of our faith who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, said this in his old age. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Aren't we all great sinners? But we have an even greater Savior. So sin compromiser, leave here this morning remembering that Jesus, your great Savior, has set you free from the power of sin. So run from sin. The self-condemner, leave here today remembering Jesus, that him as your advocate, your propitiation, this wonderful Savior has set you free once and for all from sin's penalty. Remember Jesus. And to the still condemned, believe in him today. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sin. Run to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. You, by your grace and mercy, sought it good, right, and best for your glory, according to your plan and your purpose, to save us, to send your son to die for us, to draw us to him, to give us the promise of eternal life, to indwell us with your spirit, to seal us for the day of redemption. Father, we magnify that. We glorify that. We rejoice in that. So, Father, I pray for every believer here today that we would see the power of the gospel and rejoice in it and live it, to run from sin and not compromise with it, but also to remember Jesus when we do sin and not allow condemnation to have one moment in our lives, that that conviction would drive us to the cross and rejoice and revel in the grace and mercy of our God given to us through your Son. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not yet know you, that today would be the day that they trust in you, that you would draw them to behold your Son, to trust in him, to repent of their sin, and be transformed and saved and have Jesus as their advocate and propitiation, and that they would remember him and sing his praises for all eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.